future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Over the holidays, I picked up The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers by Maxwell King. It was a great read. Three things really struck me as I read about Fred Rogers' life and work. First was his deep appreciation of the unique opportunities of childhood. Well before human development and the learning sciences were recognized fields, he believed in the power of healthy contexts and experiences, the importance of young children feeling safe, known, and understood. He believed in the power of the smallest details to impact children. And he was committed to integrating what he learned from the leading developmental and learning scientists of the day into his iconic show. Second was his intentional focus on the unit he termed the neighborhood. If you place Mr. Rogers' neighborhood in its historic context, it's clear that Fred Rogers didn't run away from the challenges created by the social upheavals of the 1950s and 60s. Rather, he dealt directly with issues like war and peace, racial politics, economic injustice, gender equality, and ecological ethics. Rogers believed that a vision of peace isn't just the absence of war or conflict. It requires building new ways of being grounded in love and compassion. He invited children and their adults to consider that they were part of building this kinder, more compassionate world. And he used his neighborhood to illustrate what it meant to make these ideas real. In every episode, he demonstrated how neighborhoods allow us to exercise the muscles of compassion, of listening, of empathizing, of grappling with the complexity that exists within a pluralistic world. And third was his deep faith in those he called helpers. Rogers is well known for sharing the story of how his mother helped him cope with the scary things he learned about the world when he was young. He told children, my mother would say to me, Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in the world. This first season of the Future of Smart podcast has been about learning from those I would term helpers in the Fred Rogers sense of the word people caring about the world around them, and working to articulate a new vision of what could be for young people and communities. As we wind down season one, it's been wonderful to sit down with some of these helpers who are leaders in the field of educational philanthropy, working with their neighbors and in their neighborhoods to build more human-centered schools, experiences, and ecosystems. My guest today is Greg Baer, 
Executive Director of the Grable Foundation, which provides support to organizations that improve the lives of children in the Pittsburgh region from early childhood through their formative years, inside the classroom and out. Greg is also co-author of a wonderful book entitled, When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. In the book, Greg and his co-author translate Fred Rogers' work through the lens of education, helping to illustrate how the principles that informed Rogers' TV show can be extended to create contexts in which young people and families can experience their communities as learning ecosystems. These design principles have informed one of Grable's key projects, Remake Learning, a network of more than 600 schools, museums, libraries, early learning centers, campuses of higher education, and creative industries across southwestern Pennsylvania and northern West Virginia. These partners are working together to advance relevant, engaging, and equitable learning for all children. Join me for an inspiring conversation with Greg about how Fred Rogers' legacy continues to change neighborhoods around the country. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Alka. I'm so glad to be in this space with you. Thank you. So I want to start where I usually start, which is um, just learning a little bit about your own story um, and what's brought you to the work that you do today. I suppose for anyone, there are many layers of answers to that question. First, I'm a Western Pennsylvania kid, which matters because I'm coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is my hometown. And it's a place that I adore and made a commitment that this is where I wanted to be uh, professionally. This is where I want to raise my family. And this is where I'm glad to call home. For me, my life is really about public service. And I endeavor to do good in this world. It's, it's ultimately what I hope for myself and hope for my own family. And so my commitment to what is now education and learning really stems first from a commitment to public education. And along the way, working in a center for the homeless, working in schools, working in state government and the federal government, I came to appreciate that the thing that lights me up is education. Uh, it might have been transportation policy. It might have been climate change. For me, the thing that lights me up is education and learning. But I came to it again, not only through public service, but a commitment to public service through the nonprofit sector. I learned early on that I was not particularly well-suited to work in government. People who work in government are extraordinary. I just have an itchy personality and a mindset that better suits me for the entrepreneurial aspects of our civil society. And so I come to this work through civil society, a commitment to voluntary action for the public good. And it's through civil society that I've come to work at a foundation, a grant-making foundation that's committed to kids and learning, the thing that I care deeply about. That's great. Thanks. Um, I was with you in Pittsburgh a few years ago, um, and I know even at the time, Issues of, of equity and racial justice were sort of percolating. But of course, we're at this moment now after the kind of twin pandemics that we had of explicitly acknowledging um, the role of race in this country um, and in education. I know, like me, you raise, you're raising biracial children. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot about what that means for my kids um, as they engage with their father, their Midwestern family. I'm curious what you might be willing to share about your own journey as a white male leader in this space and in this sector, particularly 
over the tumult of the next of the of the last few years. We experience this both personally and professionally, don't you and I? So mm-hmm. personally, you're right. I am raising biracial children, and I often tease with my wife that I didn't realize I was also going to have a cultural exchange in getting married and what that meant. And fortunately for me and my girls, we've not experienced explicit racism or other danger. But what we have experienced are the subtle nuances, the words people say, the looks people give to you, how they respond to you. That's something that I've noticed more and more over the years. And it's been hard to notice that. And I've learned about myself that I didn't notice it previously, right? I was unaware. And and so I notice things now in a way that I hadn't noticed previously. For my wife, who's Asian American, the pandemic was an incredibly hard time. She's Taiwanese by background. Taiwanese, even though there's a difference between Taiwanese and mainland Chinese, she was put in the category of being Chinese. And, um, well, you know the ways in which people talked about the pandemic and ascribed all sorts of blame to individuals who appeared Chinese in any way. And my wife is someone who's engaged publicly. She's elected to our school board. And the vitriol that we witnessed personally, in emails, in social media, was awful. I had never experienced anything like that before. And um, it saddened me. It, 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 well, it hurt. It saddened me a lot. It, it really did hurt. And um, it was during the pandemic, during some of the violence against Asian Americans across this country, that my older daughter, who was then nine, came home one night. It was one of those nights where I was absolutely exhausted. It was during March, I remember it well. It was March Madness basketball tournament is underway. I wanted nothing more than to sit on my sofa and in the rare moment, sit down and watch a basketball game. In fact, watch five simultaneously, right? And I'm sitting on the sofa and my daughter, who's lying right next to me, turns to me and in a moment out of the blue says, Daddy, am I going to be shot? Mm. Now, I am sure, I am certain that there are families across this country who look nothing like me, who've heard this question. For me, that was the first time I'd ever heard a question like that. And to come from a nine-year-old was stunning and shocking. And I realized that... While my wife and I do try and do a lot to protect the girls, not in a way that they're naive, but that they're just protected from bad things in the world, that the news of mass murders of Asian Americans in Atlanta had gotten into our house in suburban Pittsburgh. And I froze. It was a really hard moment. And the only thing that I could think of at that moment were the lessons that I learned in the book that I was so lucky to co-author at Ryan Rudzeski really about the work of Fred Rogers and his teachings. It was like all of those lessons came home to me at that moment. And I thought I have to do nothing more at this moment than acknowledge what it is that my daughter said to give her assurance that she was safe, to let her know that I actually don't have answers to her questions, but that together we would talk about it and figure things out. And in the moment, I think that was enough. Um, And it was hard. And that's in my personal life. Professionally, 
I recognize that I'm a person of incredible privilege and I work in a field of philanthropy that's a field of incredible privilege. I'd like to think that over the years, I've gotten better and better about listening, about listening deeply and lovingly, about engaging with people who are much more proximate to the issues in which I might be engaged than I ever can be because of context, because of circumstance, because of life experience. Mm. So much there that I want to unpack. And but thank you for you know your candor. It is um, these are muscles, right? That we're all building and growing all the time. And it's it's a process and a journey. So you mentioned the book you've written, um, When You Wonder You're Learning, Mr. Rogers Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. Um, it's a great book. I loved it. I highly recommend it to folks who are listening. Tell us about the inspiration um, for the book and a little bit about kind of the process and what you learned along the way. Thank you, Olka. So let me say again, I'm a Western Pennsylvania kid. Why does that matter? It matters because Fred Rogers himself was a kid of Western Pennsylvania. He grew up in a town just to the east of Pittsburgh called Latrobe or Latrobe, as it might be known locally, right here in southwestern Pennsylvania. And he filmed that iconic television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, at WQED Television, America's first public television station, right here in Pittsburgh. So I mentioned that to say I have an emotional tie to Fred Rogers. I was lucky enough as a kid to sit alongside my brother, to sit with my mom, and I watched countless episodes of Mr. Rogers. He was part of my childhood. And now, as an adult who lives in this community where Mr. Rogers lived, where Mr. Rogers produced his work, and having the opportunity to now work alongside people who worked with Mr. Rogers for decades under the auspices of family communications, I've come to appreciate and understand Mr. Rogers differently, right? We can all think of him as that warm, loving character whom, uh, or not even a character, a warm, loving personality who was on the other side of our screens and created those magical moments for us of all sorts of wondrous learning. But we can think about Fred Rogers really differently. Right? In so many ways, he was a geek. He was an innovator of his time. He saw the newfangled technology of television, noticed that it was attractive to kids, and said, how do I make that good and constructive? And the really interesting thing about Fred Rogers and his story is this, that when he decided to use that technology to minister to children, as he said, it was his teachers at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary where he was enrolled who said, well, Fred, you better learn something about child development theory and practice, which was sound advice, right? Well, Fred ended up at a place called the Arsenal Family and Children's Center here in Pittsburgh. And this is where his story gets completely interesting because there was a remarkable happenstance of what became a Mount Rushmore of child development psychiatrists, um, psychologists, pediatricians who were all in this place during the same exact time. There were folks like Benjamin Spock, the pediatrician who wrote the book, Baby and Child Care. It's one of the best-selling books of all time on this continent. There were folks like Eric Erickson. You had folks like Brazelton and others coming through that space. And you had Margaret McFarland, who was a, a, a psychiatrist at the University of Pittsburgh, who became Fred Rogers' lifelong mentor and dear friend. So I mention this to say that while we didn't use those phrases, whole child or learning sciences, you know, half a century ago, that's the, the setting in which Fred found himself. 
And he took all of that science that he was learning from these extraordinary people, and he ultimately uh, ultimately applied it in a remarkably seamless way to us as as viewers, particularly as kid viewers. He applied that science to puppetry and lyrics and the physical set itself, right? So Fred Rogers was this incredible learning scientist who was decades ahead of his time. I mention that because in our work here at the Grable Foundation, focused on kids and learning, you could imagine that we aim to be curious. And so we're lucky enough to try and read all sorts of journal articles coming out of places right here in our own backyard, like Carnegie Mellon University or the University of Pittsburgh, but also MIT and the University of Washington and elsewhere, where actual today learning scientists are producing some remarkable work around cognition, around neuroscience, around all sorts of subject matter. And it was about five, six years ago that as we're reading this material, the light bulb went off. And the light bulb was this. These incredibly wickedly smart learning scientists, their papers are reading like scripts from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And it was that aha moment that made us think, you know, is there a story to tell about Fred Rogers that we unpack what it is that he actually did, how he did it, his blueprints. And perhaps it's incredibly relevant for our time that maybe 50 years ago, Fred Rogers produced blueprints for learning that are as applicable, maybe even more applicable to now and this moment and this future in which we find ourselves than ever before. And so that's what Ryan and I endeavored to do in this book, to represent Fred Rogers as that loving person whom we all came to know, but as a wickedly smart learning scientist who was decades ahead of his time, how he did it, what his blueprints for learning are, and how it connects to the things we're learning today and the concrete places where we see that playing out in schools and museums and libraries. So share a couple of the the big ideas, the big takeaways um, for listeners. Well, the most important thing about Fred's work is this, that he created an atmosphere for learning, right? A journalist once asked him, what are you doing with this show? And Fred described it as that, as creating an atmosphere for learning, which makes sense because as we look back of that program as adults, you know, we didn't learn fractions. We weren't learning predicates. It wasn't Mr. Rogers' classroom. It wasn't Mr. Rogers' school. He created this atmosphere for learning that was so powerfully important that sparked creativity and curiosity and wonder and working together. Also importantly, Fred recognized the critical role of caring relationships, right? Karen Pittman, among others, talked about this in a previous podcast episode that you hosted. The critical role of positive, caring adults in kids' lives. And we saw that in not only Fred Rogers himself, but we saw that in Officer Clemens, we saw that in Handyman Negri, we saw that in all sorts of adults who were on that program. And do you know that today, the animated version of what was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, now known to millions of us as Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, that adults outnumber child characters on that modern animated show by about three to one. It's a reminder about the role of caring adults. And the other thing that is really notable to this time, among other things, I could go on and on, Olka. Yeah. But Fred, um, Fred appreciated all of those years ago that learning happens everywhere, right? Again, it wasn't Mr. Rogers' school. It was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And yes, we learned in his living room and in the land of make-believe, but we went off to crayon factories and gardens and restaurants and libraries and museums 
We learned from Baker Aker. We learned from all sorts of people in a setting, a landscape of learning that was right outside our door in our neighborhoods, whether that was urban, rural, or beyond. And Fred understood that learning happens everywhere. He might've been one of the first advocates of learning ecosystems. But again, we don't think about Fred that way. Mm. So I have a couple of questions. If, if you could channel Fred Rogers, like what, what advice, what thoughts would he offer to those of us today who are looking around um, at our education system, knowing that we don't want to go back um, to what we were at pre-pandemic, but to kind of build the next version of this that, to your point, Fred Rogers was creating, was talking about it 50 years ago, but we had earlier guests who talked about indigenous education and how indigenous mm-hmm. communities have educated their students. At our conference, we had a fabulous panel of Black leaders who talked about Black education and Black educators and how they did that. So what would Fred kind of advise us um, about today? I would never pretend to channel Fred Rogers, right? Okay, fine. But that said, I also have no doubt that Fred would counsel us to put kids first, to take advantage of all that we're learning about learning itself. And I suspect he'd be taking advantage of, I don't know, maybe TikTok, maybe VR. Uh, He'd be recognizing and noticing the things that are attractive in kids' lives And he'd be pushing us all to say, how do we make this good and constructive? Because it's the thing that's lighting up kids. And so if we notice that that's lighting up kids, how do we create that atmosphere around them with these tools, these devices, with the caring adults and the learning sciences in a way that is constructive for their learning? And he would focus first and foremost on culture and relationships, whether that's in a school building, a library, a museum. And I think further... As we talk about things like learning ecosystems, he would acknowledge that, well, first of all, he would never even claim to have been at the forefront of this work. And and you're right. If we look at freedom schools, if we look at indigenous education, there are a lot of people who've been thinking about this and doing this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But as Emerson said, each generation writes its own books. And we're a new generation writing a new book, ideally take advantage of the wisdom that came before us and applying it in smart ways to support our kids and what they need us to do. And further, Fred would say, be the best version of Alka. Be the best version of Greg. Don't don't be Fred. Be you and be your authentic self um, because that'll make all the difference. That'll be the gift that you give to the kids in your care. What do you think he would have to say about measurement? Right? Measurement feels like one of the things that's holding us back. And there are lots of conversations, I think, going on right now, especially among funders, about new measurement systems, new ways of measuring. What would he have measured? And how would he have measured it in terms of the things he thought were important? Well, that's a great question. I, I, he wasn't a data scientist, right? He wouldn't even have called himself a learning scientist. I think he would have been cautious about measurement in a way that constrains us or that tracks children or that doesn't recognize or potentially suppresses their inherent worth. You know, Fred said, everyone has something worth giving. So he would have, if he were to engage in the subject matter, I suspect he would, he would be in the camp of Let's start from assets and asset mapping. And let's presume first and foremost that there is genius 
in every single child. And if we start from a place of assuming the worth and genius of every single child, how then would we construct measurement in a way that's constructive and helpful to that learner himself or herself? It's constructive and helpful to their parents, families, or caregivers, and constructive and helpful to the educators in their lives. I suspect, although I can't and I wouldn't channel Fred Rogers, I suspect that's where he would push us. You talked about learning ecosystems and Grable, your team, you have been hard at work um, in partnership with your community um, with Remake Learning. Tell us a little bit about Remake Learning and the learning ecosystem that you've been building in Pittsburgh. The work began quite simply in late 2006 and 2007 by having folks come together who were interested in caring about learning. So the interesting thing about the beginnings of this work and the beginnings begin over pancakes and coffee, right? It's fueled by great food and company and relationship. But you can imagine a teacher and a designer and an artist and a technologist and others sitting down to say, how might we serve kids differently? Because at that time, we were beginning to notice a few things. We were beginning to notice that kids were developing their identities differently, that they were consuming and producing information differently, that they were developing relationships differently. And we started thinking then, if that's true, if kids are fundamentally different, and if we're noticing that we're not connecting with kids the way that we used to, whether it was in our classroom from a year before or in our museum exhibits or our summer camp experiences, if we think something seismically happening in kids' lives, how is it that we need to approach this work differently? And early on in that work, in fact, we, we gravitated to the work of Fred Rogers. So while I mentioned the light bulb moment Ryan and I had five or six years ago, we gravitated very early on to that narrative of Fred Rogers and thinking about some of these teachers and technologists and artists and others as modern day Fred Rogers. And what is it that we could do to build out that neighborhood, to build out that landscape? Now, we weren't smart enough to say we were building a learning ecosystem. Um, I'm not even sure, or at least I'm not smart enough to have known that 15, 20 years ago, there were folks working in an ecosystemic way. And in the last few years, this, this term of art has taken hold, particularly internationally. I'd say even more so internationally than domestically. But this idea of that learning landscape and how we integrate those 80% of waking hours that kids are not in a school building not to dismiss the central role that schools play in kids' lives, but how we really build out that ecosystem. And that's what Remake Learning has endeavored to do. So in 2016, Remake Learning published a playbook about its work and just recently published what we call the Pittsburgh Principles, lessons learned in this community about what it takes and what it's still going to take on our part to build out an ever more coherent, authentic, meaningful, and constructive learning landscape, a learning ecosystem that it supports our learners and the caring adults in their lives ever better to build out the learning experiences that our young people need. So I've had a chance to, to be in Pittsburgh and see elements of this, but for folks who haven't, can you give us sort of just a, a more concrete picture of what is a child's experience, a child and their caregiver's experience in Pittsburgh today as a result of all the work and the building and the weaving that you've been doing? So I'll give you a couple of different examples and let's start with the library because most of us can envision a library, right? Let's think just about the Carnegie Library System of Pittsburgh. 
it was about 12, 15 years ago that they were being challenged. Could the library system still be relevant to teenagers? Like, could we imagine that? And what is it that we would need to do? Because our libraries were hemorrhaging teenage users of library services. And the library said, well, we're still a hub for great learning in this community. We think we can reinvent this work. And they worked with the Carnegie Mellon University Entertainment Technology Center to redesign a teen space in the library setting. But the idea was, could we build a space where kids want to hang out, where they feel comfortable and they belong? And so working with the Entertainment Technology Center, the library said, well, we, we still have this space and we still have books and we still have a librarian, but what if we had different type of furniture in this space? What if we had guitars and hammers and hardware and software and things in the space that the kids could use, but also check out? And, you know, does it need to be so quiet? Like, could this be a joyful, vibrant, maybe even loud place of learning? And what if, yeah, we had librarians, but what if there were hip hop artists in here or filmmakers or storytellers of all sorts? Like, what would that look like if if we supported kids with with adults with multiple talents that might connect with them in different ways? And so the Carnegie Libraries of Pittsburgh built out what is now known as the Labs, And it's now built out across all of their library buildings in the city of Pittsburgh, a teen space where kids want to hang out. It's an attractive setting filled with caring adults and the types of things that want, you know, they want to go there. And then in that space, they start to mess around because I don't know if you want to do an oral history project of your neighborhood, right? You're supported with the tools and devices and the humans. And then you really start to geek out because you have a sense of agency and possibility. And you know what? You start checking out books, among other things, right? But a very traditional measure. Do you know the Carnegie Libraries of Pittsburgh has seen a 100% increase in the number of teens coming back to those settings, and they've seen a 20% increase in book circulation among teens, with two teenage boys, that's a big deal. <laughs> I want these libraries in Denver. <laughs> and also, that's just a traditional measure. I mean, you and I know all sorts of learning is happening in that setting, and, and maybe it's measured, maybe it's not, maybe it shouldn't even be measured. I don't know. But great things are happening in that space because that's where the kids want to be. They feel safe. They feel like they belong. They feel like they want to learn. That's one colorful, beautiful example. That's there great. are so many other great examples. Let me cite the Citizen Science Lab. The Citizen Science Lab is a nonprofit organization that's developed um, outstanding science labs for historically marginalized students in this community. And just one example of one brilliant thing that they've done most recently with support from Remake Learning is this. They were provoked by the idea of free little libraries. Take a book, you can give a book, you shut the, the little doors and you're on your way. And they said, couldn't we take that, de- that idea and create free little STEM libraries. They call them bio, I think they call them biodomes. But the idea is why not take that same principle and fill them with science kits and other things that parents, families, kids can take and they could take it home and they can experiment in all sorts of ways supporting STEM learning. Hmm. You know, we have so many examples around computational thinking, around maker-centered learning, around STEM and STEAM. There are hundreds upon hundreds of discrete examples. We often describe it as thousands of little bets that our schools, museums, libraries, and others have have made 
more often than not in cooperation with another organization, with other adults in that setting, so that maybe technologists and teachers are working together on digital math blocks, or artists and librarians are working on a new experience um, in summer camp programs. All sorts of examples, recreating learning experiences that draw upon what is timeless and classic about learning, like the role of deep and caring relationships with what is new and innovative and attractive to our young people. You and I are part of a, an international community that, um, that calls itself the Weaving um, Lab. And the work um, that's happening, for those who don't know, Weaving is this idea of connecting people, ideas, and projects to foster more collaborative social change. Um, somebody has said, Weaving is a skill, it's a mindset, and a way of being. What, what you're describing is a very different way of being, a very different way of working. So you're at the, at the back end of it, or at least 20 years into it. What were the challenges um, as you were trying to bring the community together to ask institutions to work differently, to think differently? And then I'll, I'd love to go back into the funding piece of that. But what were the challenges? There were many challenges, although they weren't problems. So among the challenges was language, right? Uh, we, we lucked into that phrase, remake learning. And my colleagues at the Sprout Fund are the ones who deserve credit for that simple phrase. A phrase that I love because remake honors and respects what has come previously and says we need to remake it for this time. So we don't need to reimagine it. We don't need to transform it. We need to remake it for these times. And the idea of learning, because uh, education too often conveys schooling and the idea of learning you know, it was purposeful in its choice to suggest we need something beyond. So when I think about some of the early work, there was a messiness of language because just like you and I have personal interests, so too do schools, museums, libraries, and other sites of learning. You could imagine the Carnegie Science Center of Pittsburgh had a STEM orientation, whereas our libraries had a digital media and learning orientation. The children's museums in our community really gravitated to maker-centered learning. It's just a few examples. But the idea was that we didn't announce, and now we shall all do X, but rather this idea of remake learning says, you know what? There are 29, if not 29,000 ways to describe these new approaches to learning. Bring your interest, start with your interest. And then start to bump up against other people who are doing different things, but have a value orientation and a commitment to kids and an approach to learning that's powerful for these times and see how that might mix. And that was important too, the mixing of technologists and designers and artists. There's a lot of social work in this, in, in the work of, of building out or supporting, I should say, you don't really build out an ecosystem. It's already there, but advancing it and augmenting it, it, it's really helping to facilitate those relationships. And we've, you know, we form those relationships best over food and coffee and pancakes and right, like there's a lot of social aspect to this work. I think it was also important early on to demonstrate that this wasn't, these weren't zero sum opportunities, that this really was a collective effort that collectively organizations can improve upon their work, collectively uh, raise and identify revenue to support it, the things that they're doing, that, that it wasn't, you know, to suppress that, that sense of co-op competition 
that too often in hampers genuine collaboration and cooperative work because that's really hard work. And another thing too, you know, networks are hard. They're messy, right? It's so much easier to say, and we have this organization and this is the hierarchy and this is how things work. But in a network, it's, there's no obvious hub. There are many hubs and it's a lot messier. Um, and it's, uh, and, and that makes it hard to sometimes talk about, which is the other really important thing about this work that I didn't appreciate enough early on the importance of documentation, that storytelling about why this work is important, how it's important, how it's facilitated and the videography and the writing and the photography and all of the ways that we can tell stories about this work because stories inspire Stories give cover to people making seemingly courageous decisions. Stories prompt us to be curious. And that storytelling was something that, you know, if I could go back, rewrite some things, we would invest in heavily from the very beginning. Um, fortunately, others were smarter to get to that space than I ever was. And, um, and that storytelling documentation has been key to this work from the very beginning of Remake Learning. As a funding organization, did Grable need to change the way that it was approaching its work? And if so, how? Not really. Okay. So I, I'm maybe one of the lucky ones working in the field of philanthropy. I work from some extraordinary trustees who have an orientation and a commitment, not only to kids and learning, obviously, but a deep appreciation for patient support and patient support for field building intermediary organizations. So there were a number of things that are obvious precursors to remake learning in this community. Things like early childhood and, and building out of the early childhood community. And, and support for the original field building organization, the Pittsburgh Association for the Education of Young Children, today known as Trying Together, and building out the field of early learning. That happened too in the out-of-school time space through the um, Allegheny Partnership for Out-of-School Time. We've seen it in the arts education space through the Arts Education Collaborative. I could go down a list, Olka, of field building intermediary organizations serving a whole field of other nonprofit organizations and schools across Southwestern Pennsylvania. And the Grable Foundation and its trustees, among others, among other funders, um, because the, maybe the Pittsburgh community um, understood this long before others, that patient year in, year out support, that's quite frankly, unsexy, but building that infrastructure and the need to continuously year in, year out fund that infrastructure, because that infrastructure that helps nonprofit leaders and their organizations do what they do and do it better. And so Remake Learning was so fortunate to, you know, to fall on top of this remarkable infrastructure that was already in place. You know, I think that the challenge for us as staff, for our trustees, was just, what is this? Like, what are these new approaches to learning? I mean, one has to be incredibly curious about continuously learning what we're learning from the learning sciences and how that plays out through all sorts of modern approaches, frameworks, pedagogies um, to support that work. And so, if anything, it's been a continuous learning experience for all of us. 
That's great. And it's so great that the infrastructure was there, but that also the foundation itself, right, had the had the sort of capacity to do this, which we know is not true generally in philanthropy. And so I'm just curious, right, as you think about this moment in philanthropy, as you think about colleagues um, in other foundations and places, what are some thoughts you have about how funders and philanthropists need to be shifting their thinking, their ways of operating in order to kind of do some of this remaking, right, in, in the spaces and the spheres that they influence? One, I think we have to be comfortable that there are many answers to that question. I don't think there is any one right way. Our approach has been this, patient support. And by patient, I mean multi-year funding, multi-year refunding that's as general operating or unrestricted as possible, respecting and appreciating the work that our colleagues do, having an orientation that... We're privileged to be able to support the organizations that we do, and we only achieve success to the extent that the organizations we're privileged to support are in turn achieving success. And then a commitment to catalytic funding. Now, I think we see catalytic funding often happening in these big prizes, right? Like big prizes to you know, figure out how we're going to address cancer or how you're going to send a rocket to the moon. I'd like to suggest there's a totally different approach to catalytic funding that's more powerful. And there's a book called Little Bets. I use the phrase all the time. We're believers here that great change actually happens, not through in those, those grand sweeping moments, uh, you know, as much as we might be powerfully drawn to the idea of we're going to go to the moon and there are moonshots to be had. But there are, in fact, thousands upon thousands of moonshots and little bets that we need to make because change is hard. We humans are not well wired for change. And we're actually asking, you know, we're introducing change, developmentally appropriate, smart, well-evidenced change, but we're asking human beings to change their behaviors and to do things differently. And that best happens in, it's not incremental, um, but it is in those little bets that beget more little bets that beget more behavior changes. And it's those thousands of little bets that are really sticky. I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking back to Deanna James, who was one of our first uh, guests who talked about the village, right? That all of us live in a village and part of what you were doing, one was focusing on your village. Um, what you didn't say, but you alluded to a couple of times was this idea of coffee and pancakes. And But like the, the relationship building, the trust building in the moments that are not about the work necessarily. So it feels like you also did a lot of that. As, yes. a, as a community, um, which also feels important to sort of name. But yeah, instead of the big... And Olga, if I may interrupt you, it, yeah. it's not just those social moments. I mean, we might laugh about happy hours and things, but those, are, those meetups and happy hours are really important. And I would add to that the celebrations, right? We just celebrated the 15th anniversary of Remake Learning with a great big 15th anniversary event. We've done that previously um, with anniversary moments, with milestone moments, but... And I mention that because a community and a city and a region and a country, we celebrate the way that an eight-year-old celebrates his or her eighth birthday and looks forward to it, right? Those celebrations are part of that social cohesion and they matter a lot in this work. 
you're sort of like um, you're pointing at both the process as well as the kind of outcomes, right? And really valuing both um, in a way that sometimes gets lost, both in learning and education, but in so many other fields as well. Um, public education feels like it's in peril at this moment. Um, I was just on a call talking about like the election next week. Um, we're seeing a lot of families, a lot of kind of communities pulling their kids out of the public education system. Does this resonate with you? The idea that unless public education can remake itself somehow, um, it is kind of in danger of not being the sort of force that it has been in, in American society. Yes and no. But I'm not in the camp that believes that public education is in peril. Now, admittedly, I'm someone who is very much glass half full, and you know me well enough to know I do. That. It's refreshing, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I say it because of this. We know from data, for example, recently collected by the Brookings Institution in a remarkably huge data study that's both domestic and international, that in fact, a supermajority, 74% of parents, families, and caregivers want innovative approaches to learning. In fact, uh, it's also a large plurality of teachers, um, slightly behind at 66%. But the parents themselves are saying, we don't want to go back to what was. We actually want these innovative approaches to learning. So I start with those that are most responsible for the kids in our schools and other sets of learning, that this is actually what they want, which runs absolutely contrary to the narrative that we hear in this world about public education and where it is. And I'm a, I'm a public education grad. My daughters attend public schools. My wife serves in, as an elected official on a public school board. Um, ideally, on my best days, I'm a great advocate for public education and what happens in, in public learning. And I, um, I'm, I, part of my job is, is really to be witness to some extraordinary work. Here in southwestern Pennsylvania, there are 34 school districts that make up something called the Western Pennsylvania Learning 2025 Alliance. These four, 34 school districts represent 110,000 kids, more than 70,000 of whom uh, live in poverty. And they are urban, suburban, and rural. They, if you could imagine the remarkable geographic spread as well as the socioeconomic spread in this region, these 34 school districts represent every single possibility. And the Learning 2025 in that moniker refers to the work that AASA, the National Superintendents Association, is doing at a national level, uh, advanced by a, a publication that came out in April 2021 about what we might do to support our schools and public education in this country so that it's more equity and justice focused, so that it's more future driven, and that it's more learner centered. And I see our schools doing some extraordinary work commensurate with what we're seeing in out-of-school time and early learning and our campuses of higher education. And just today, I had the opportunity to uh, speak with the state superintendents of the year for the, our country, right? Like 51 amazing superintendents who are leading this work. But whether it's these superintendents working so incredibly hard and smartly and innovatively at a national level, or these 30 four school districts and their administrative teams and their school boards working together at a regional level, 
I see amongst us incredible work that should inspire us about public education and realizing a vision that is in fact justice-focused, learner-centered, and uh, remarkably supportive of kids and their futures. Greg, if we wanted to capture right the work that you're describing that I agree is going on in every school and kind of every place in this country, what would we add into, and I don't even like the term, but people think about our accountability systems, right? This is how we tell whether our schools and systems are doing a good job. What would we add into that to capture this important work, right? That's forward-facing work. I wish I knew. I, in so many, you know, I, I'm pausing because I struggle with issues of accountability. There, there's, you know, there's absolutely a place for measurement and accountability, no doubt about it. And there are some tools that we use now that I think are incredibly instructive and helpful as we think about formative and summative assessment. There's great work that you and I know is happening to reimagine those assessments and what they might mean in support of great learning in our schools and other sites of learning. And the pause in my voice is twofold. One, that accountability and accountability systems then narrow us in, right? Like it, it just seems to cement a wall and build a wall around something that is open walled. Um, and so in so many ways, it doesn't make sense. And I'd love to see more and more storytelling and documentation. I'm not sure we do enough in this country in terms of high quality, qualitative assessment to tell the story of what's happening in our schools. And we think about portfolios and how powerful portfolios can be for individual learners. Uh, in demonstrating their mastery and competency around learning and being able to just demonstrate that in incredibly powerful ways. What does that portfolio look like for a community like Southwestern Pennsylvania or for an entire country like America? What would a, a portfolio approach to assessment look like? I'm not smart enough to figure that out, but I think that absolutely should be part of our accountability system as much as obvious tools and metrics already are. Hmm. Well, and when you think about sort of a collective accountability as well, right, the whole independent school sector works on accreditation visits where you get teams that come into your program and they don't just look at one thing, they give you feedback and everything's a constant improvement process. So there are lots of different ways to do this. And I appreciate you pushing back. I think a critic might say in America, up until about 40 years ago, we told stories about schools and there were whole groups of students that got left behind because they weren't being served well. And that in many ways, this kind of push towards accountability and trying to standardize was to do that. So what's the response there? How do we balance um, the need to really know and to ensure that all kids are served with what you just said? Well, I think it is, you use the word balance, right? It's not either or, it's both and, and, and. There is no doubt that the accountability system that we've really seen come to the fore in this country over the past 20 years has illuminated for us and given us the data and evidence about students who've been historically marginalized and for whom our public systems have not worked well. I actually think that's been incredibly constructive and is helpful. And I wouldn't... so. There is a place for what we've come to appreciate as traditional accountability mechanisms. I wouldn't dismiss that at all. 
I think we should use the conjunction and, 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 not or. That's great. So you started this story by kind of saying, you know, you've worked in public service and sort of nonprofit work your entire career. That's been true mostly for me and for most of us who work in the education space. However, our boards of directors are often made up of folks who aren't educators, who haven't worked in the social fields. So they're coming in with knowledge and understandings about return on investment, on sort of ideas about impact that are sometimes at odds. I'm curious, you know, how do we help bring our boards along to thinking differently about kind of philanthropy, about impact, about measurement, um, in order to be able to do this kind of catalytic, transformative rebuilding work? The answer to that is probably no different than the answer to any of us who are in professions. I think of teachers because there's no profession that attends to its craft the way that teachers do in ways that they are continuously learning to continuously improve their craft to support what it is that they do in, in their classrooms and in their schools. Ideally, we do that in philanthropy. And in fact, it's one of the privileges of working in philanthropy, of having the space to be a policy wonk, to be a bit of a nerd and to continuously learn what the cutting edge might be to be certain about what the data and science says. And when we don't know, to be curious about finding the answer among our colleagues in proximity to the community in research that's available to us. The answer to your question should be no different for our boards of directors. Many of us are lucky to serve as board of directors. I serve a board of director in my role as executive. And we try and create that same curious environment for our trustees as we do for our staffs and as I expect of myself. And so what does that mean? It means logistically doing things like preparing all sorts of white papers for internal generative conversation. It means uh, telling the stories and documenting the stories and finding multiple ways to convey those stories to our trustees. It means getting our trustees out into the community. There is never a board meeting that we hold that we are not out in the community, walking around, driving around, meeting people uh, so that we understand the community that we're privileged to support. I think we need to create learning cultures in our organizations and learning cultures apply to our boards of director as much as they apply to staff. Um, I'm curious, um, you've listened to this podcast. What Give us a couple of things that have struck you from past guests, from topics, themes. Uh, well, first of all, it's a great podcast series. Thank you. Everyone should be listening <laughs> to this. Um, so I love the work of Annie Murphy-Paul. Um, she's someone whose work resonates with me because Ryan and I, in our, in our book, you know, tried to digest learning science and present it in plain English ways. I think Annie Murphy-Paul does that a thousand times better than I do. Um, and, and so I genuinely appreciate hear, her, hearing her talking about cognition and multiple um, understandings of what cognition is and, and identifying in plainer English um, what all of that means and how we apply it. I, um, I always adore listening to someone wise like Karen Pittman. And um, 
you know, we, we, you were, you actually used the, the phrase earlier in, in talking about remake learning as a mindset, as an approach. And, and that's very much what it is. And it was interesting for me listening to her talk about youth development as an approach and an, uh, as an approach that's taken hold in certain systems. But as the two of you discussed in that broadcast, how it's n- n- clearly not taken hold in our formal public school systems. But I have to admit, I always, until now, and I've now been corrected, right? Like I think of, I've thought of youth development as a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that podcast illuminated for me about what it means to think about it as an approach mm-hmm. and, and what doing so then means. Um, the work uh, featured in, uh, um, you had guests from Vista and Next Generation Learning Challenges about illuminating spotlights of schools and other sites of learning and communities that seem to be better prepared for the pandemic and why that was. And in fact, the years of work that had gone on well in advance of the pandemic and, and really adopting a different approach and a different sorts of, of, of culture and training and how that prepared them differently to meet that moment. I think that's an illuminating uh, episode. Well, they're all good in so many ways. I'll, I could go on. <laughs> no, those, thank those you. Those three that popped out for me. You know, what we're talking about, both in the podcast and what you're describing today, is, is large, right? This idea of remaking education is well beyond the capacity of any one funder, um, of any one organization. You were board chair at Ed Funders, and what we are is a network of funders that ideally um, comes together to do more than we could do individually. Um, what do you see as some of the biggest opportunities for this membership um, moving forward as we think about making education work better for every kid? You know, at its best, philanthropy, I think, sometimes plays uh, an R&D a research and development-like role in developmentally appropriate ways, to be sure, right? It's when we talk about experimenting, we're not talking about um, things that aren't well evidenced. But philanthropy seems to me particularly well-positioned to make some of those early bets, to invest in the R&D in recognition of what philanthropy actually is. Because as you know, for as much of the largesse, and, and the luxury of what philanthropy is, it is a small drop in the ocean when compared to public monies and the ways in which public monies support systems, whether those systems are schools or social services or library services. And so philanthropy, I think, particularly plays a best role when it's catalytic and can support that R&D document that R&D in a way that then might move public monies and communities to support work differently. That's philanthropy at its best. I also wonder if there are opportunities for national funders to support in different ways, regional and local funders in terms of leveraging their dollars in different ways um, and in different areas. It's like this big puzzle that we're trying to to kind of build together and thinking differently about uh, people's roles in in, in that picture. Um, well, okay. and, and, yeah. and to that point, the Grable Foundation, where I'm lucky to work, is very much focused in southwestern Pennsylvania. The Patterson Foundation very much focused on that Sun Coast in Western Florida. The Skillman Foundation focused in Metro Detroit. 
what our national funder colleagues can do is not only help to accelerate what's happening in places where we see genuine regional geographic progress in terms of the type of learning that we're describing, uh, but to, to help it to spread. I know you and I prefer the word spread to scale, but right, like yeah. our national funders can really help that to spread to other regions, to other locales, and to illuminate it to researchers, to the media, to state legislatures, to our federal government in ways that a, a regional funder can't do. But it's in these regions across the United States where there's extraordinary work happening that needs to be lifted up in some different and powerful ways. Mm. I mean, you are, you're describing an ecology, right? That these things are being uh, seeded all over the place. And how do we sort of move and help them sort of take root in lots of different places? Um, it's the an ecology, ecosystem. It, the ecosystem model always comes back to that, Greg. Is there anything we haven't kind of talked about that you want to make sure we touch on? There is one thing that I, I'd like to raise. And, and we referenced a little bit earlier, parents, families, and caregivers. I'm not sure we do enough, particularly in education philanthropy, to support parents, families, and caregivers, and in particular, to support our sites of learning, especially our schools, in engaging parents, families, and caregivers more powerfully. We know from data, again, data gathered by Brookings Institution and others, that in school settings where there's demonstrated evidence of, of rela high quality relational trust in those settings where that can be documented, that schools in those settings achieve outcomes 10 times settings that don't. Now, I'm not foolish to believe that there's a silver bullet in improving education. There are 59,000 silver bullets. It is also true that it is incredibly powerful to know that evidence of strong relational trust contributes to remarkable outcomes 10 times, 10 times academic, 10 times social, emotional, 10 times whatever it is that we want to put in that blank. If that's true, and we know it to be true from the science and the data, then what are we doing to support parent, family, caregiver engagement, that school family engagement in ways that are powerful and meaningful in support of the very outcomes we want to achieve? That's hard and messy work, and it's clearly work in which we need to invest. And it's the sort of investment that doesn't often get public money. And so that's a perfect role for philanthropy to play in supporting that work. Mm. Imagine if right now we were using ESSER dollars for like high dosage relationship building. So I love the idea of directors of relationships in schools. Hmm. During the course of the pandemic, Remake Learning convened a regional commission, subsequently a statewide commission in Pennsylvania around the future of learning. Huh. And our colleagues at KnowledgeWorks pushed us to imagine things for which there was a signal in the world that we could nonetheless imagine into being, even though it doesn't yet exist. And one of the things that we identified was a director of relationships. 10 years ago, there weren't directors of instructional innovation in our school districts. Now that's increasingly normal. So what if 10 years from now we could imagine every single school building having a director of relationships, not a counselor, not replacing counselors, not asking teachers to do one more thing, but an actual human being who thinks 24 seven 
about building out the social capital and the social experiences and addressing the experience gap for Mm -hmm. every single student in a way to support his or her interests and their path in learning. A director of relationships could do that. And we might have used our ESSER dollars to support such a thing. But what if we find different ways through public-private partnership to support that in schools? That's a great sort of R&D moment for philanthropy to come together with a public entity like our schools or state departments of education to support such a thing because we know the absolute critical role of positive, caring relationships in kids' lives. Greg, it's been such a pleasure to have you with me today. Thanks for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. <laughs>